Well, welcome to the start of our Christmas series, Hopes and Fears. You hear that song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, and maybe you don't know the story behind that song, but um, it was just after the Civil War had ended. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had just been assassinated. It was an incredibly tumultuous time uh, in U.S. history, and the, the country was divided, and people were divided, and a man traveled to Bethlehem, and while he was sitting uh, looking over Bethlehem, he began to pen the, the words to that song that you just heard that said this. It said, yet... In thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. He's talking about how even in the middle of the darkness, there stood this everlasting light of Jesus that was the shining uh, light that met a divided world and a divided nation. And though we didn't just lose a president to assassination or the Civil War, I think we can probably relate a little bit to some of those tensions and divisions. And yet I would say the Christmas story and the songs penned that these words were penned tell us the same hope. That even in the middle of darkness, there is hope for us. As we get into this series here, hopes and fears, the Christmas season is one of those really interesting seasons. Now, maybe you feel it uh, similar to I do. There's a lot of expectation that comes with Christmas, but there's also a lot of memories that come with Christmas. And sometimes those memories can be good, and sometimes those memories can be incredibly difficult. I think what Christmas allows us to do is to sit in an honest moment and ask the question, will I go with hope or will I go with my fears? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, our fears from our past, our fears that perhaps we presently live with, and we'll finally look at our fears for the future and how Christmas really is uh, the answer to all of those fears. Maybe as you uh, think about your past, which is what we're going to talk about today, when I even saying, hey, I want to talk about your past, it perhaps brings up some unwelcomed emotions. Uh, maybe as you hear it, you think, I don't really want to go there. Uh, that's in the past for a reason. Uh, I don't want to have to think through those things. But, and I don't say those to bring about bad emotions in you. I say that to actually say, perhaps this is the season where you get to look at your past, not with regret or remorse, but with perhaps a different emotion on it. See, as you consider the Christmas story, one of the things that doesn't necessarily uh, jump off the page to you is that the Christmas story really is people uh, full, with, full of people with shady pasts. Maybe you think this morning that as you consider your past, it's maybe a little shady. Maybe it's different. Maybe it looks a little different than some people around you, but it's not really one of those stories you love telling in public, right? Like you, you sit down in a group, maybe you went to small group and somebody's like, share your testimony. And you're like, this is why I didn't want to go to small group, right? Here's the good news. The entire story of Christmas is full of people who wish probably that their past was a little different. So the question I want to ask us this morning is, what do you do when your past haunts you? What do you do when perhaps uh, you made a series of choices over your life that has uh, kind of altered the course of your life? What do you do when perhaps it was one singular decision that you made that, that changed everything? What do you do when perhaps it wasn't any fault of your own? It was the card of the, the hand of cards you were dealt in life that just begins to haunt you. Well, to answer that question this morning, I want to tell three different stories of three different individuals, and, and we're going to see how God used them in miraculous ways, in incredible ways, to not only change their life, to be part of changing human history. I want to tell you about an individual who lived about 1400 B.C., 
In about 1400 BC, the ancient nation of Israel uh, was getting ready. They were under the, previously under the rule of Moses. He had taken them through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses has now passed. Joshua has risen up to be the leader, and they're about to go into the promised land to take the land that God promised to the Israelites. Before they go in to uh, go into the first city of Jericho, or one of the cities of Jericho, they send some spies in. I want to read the story to you here, Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. He said, go look over the land. He said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of the prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. What's interesting about this uh, story is it's a little bit different contextually than what we would understand it to be. But I want you to notice a name in here. Rahab the prostitute. Now, Rahab was somebody who was native to Jericho. She was not an Israelite. She did not worship God. She did not follow God. And in fact, her entire identity was summed up by the fact that she was a prostitute. Now, in those days, there was two different types. There was one who served uh, in the temple, and they were kind of a temple to Baal, one of the Canaanite gods, and they were part of temple uh, worship. We're going to put air quotes around that because there's little ears. And basically, if you were one of those, you were absolved of guilt and shame because it was considered a religious duty. Then there was others who did it for financial gain. That is what Rahab was. And often their homes would be considered kind of hotels or brothels. So people could come and go and guests would come and go and they wouldn't think about it. Well, how the story goes is she hides these two spies who were trying to hide from the army of Jericho. She eventually lets them escape and lets them go free. Well, God had commanded that the entire city be taken out because of their uh, evil worship and their rebellion against God. But she was to be saved. I want you to read this in Joshua chapter 6. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Interesting, every time you see uh, Rahab and you see her uh, named multiple times throughout the scriptures, even into the New Testament, when New Testament writers talk about her, she's not just Rahab, she's Rahab the prostitute. It almost became a whole identity uh, to who she was. Her actions ultimately ended up kind of uh, defining her. But as you read this story, what happens in her life is she recognized at one point, I'm following the wrong gods. I'm living the wrong lifestyle. She recognizes the Israelites' God as the one true God, leaves behind her old practices, becomes part of the Israelite nation, and ultimately uh, ends up marrying an Israelite man and becoming uh, one with the Israelites. She, she left behind her old lifestyle and followed God. But as you hear Rahab's story and you hear even her identity, it it asks the question about our past, what do you do when you really and honestly have a terribly sinful past? Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've made a series of choices that have marked you. And it may be different, it might be big, it might be little, but but as you look at the series of choices, it really has almost become an identity. Right? There's this, uh, this kind of name that follows you maybe even. Oh, that's, that's Angry Bill. Be careful. <laughs> oh, that's Karen the Gossip. Uh, be careful what you say around her. Oh, that's uh, Dirty Flirty over there. Watch out. Right? Like, w- we know we don't say these things out loud, but there's these reputations that come with these things from the series of choices we've made. But, but here's where the problem is. What if that's not you anymore? What if that's not true of your life anymore? Maybe it was true of your life at some point, but it's not true anymore. You've changed. You've come to Jesus. You've made different decisions. But by and large, it seems like that past just continues to haunt you like a ghost of Christmas past. What do you do do with that? 
Well, Jesus has hope, but you're going to have to hang on with me for a minute because I want to talk to two other individuals through two other stories here this morning. About 1200 BC, there was another woman who lived. Her name was Ruth. Ruth uh, was a Moabite, which I'll explain in a minute, but she married an Israelite man. Now, the, the nation of Moab stood across the river uh, from the nation of Israel. So you could say, in a sense, uh, that Ruth was born on the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong side of the river. She was just born to a people group and a family that didn't have a great, didn't have a great track record. Well, what happened was her husband, who was an Israelite, died. And in those days, the custom was that when your husband died, you became attached to the family. Well, he didn't have any other brothers to take care of her, so it was just the mother-in-law and her. Well, the mother-in-law decided, I'm ready to leave Moab and go back to Israel, and Ruth said, I'm going with you. The mother tried to, mother-in-law tried to protest because she knew what it meant for a Moabite individual to come over and live in Israel, but she insisted. Well, she comes across, and ultimately, she ends up marrying a man named Boaz. If you've ever heard the story of Ruth and Boaz, this is the story that we're talking about this morning. But what's interesting is every time you read it, and you can read this for yourself in, in the book of Ruth, it's a very short book. Every time Ruth is mentioned, it's Ruth the Moabite. It's never Boaz the Bethlehemite, it's Ruth the Moabite. Now, why was that? Well, you have to know the family history of the Moabites for this to make sense. You see, the Moabs were a descendant of when Lot had incestual relationships with his daughters. That was where Moab came from, which ultimately ended up becoming the Moabite people. So when an Israelite looked at somebody from Moab, they said, oh, you're one of those. You're from that family. You came from there. Well, we all know what that means. Now, I'm not going to name names or name places, but uh, I'm sure in, in the honest moment of our hearts, that might come out of us. It wouldn't be Moab. It might be someplace else. Or maybe you hear a name and just go, oh, what do you do with that? What do you do when you have bad family history? Maybe it was a, a family history of yours that was full of abuse. It was full of awful things. Whenever you think about uh, what came from your family, you, you want nothing to do with it. Maybe you have one of those family names uh, that when somebody, you say, oh, I'm Matt so-and-so, they go, oh, you're so-and-so, son. And you like, don't even want to admit it because you're like, I know what that means. And we don't say it, but we think it. What do you do with those? See, because some of the fears that come with that is, Will I ever escape this? Will I have to move across the country to build a different name? When my kids say their last name, will they be able to elicit a positive response? Or will they also get the same, oh, the fears of wondering where you came from if that's already written in your future? Can God rewrite your future or is your past defining your future? If that's you this morning, Jesus has hope for you, but you have to hang on for one more story. About 15 BC, a young woman named Mary was born. Mary was born into the Jewish world, and uh, when she was a teenager, she got an incredibly unexpected message. And I want you to read that message this morning. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, was, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she, found, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her 
quietly. Now, in their context, to be engaged was essentially to be married. It was legally binding. So here, here's how the story goes. Mary, uh, a young woman, comes up to her fiancé and says, I'm pregnant, and the baby's not yours. Well, Joseph naturally goes, okay, I'm out of here. He's an honorable man, so he goes to do it quietly. She said, wait, 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 wait. Um, but it, it, it was a result of the Holy Spirit, and it's the Son of God. <laughs> now, Joseph obviously is in a huge predicament. Does he believe this woman? Does he divorce her? Or does he get wrapped into this crazy story? Well, ultimately, an angel has to come appear before Joseph for him to believe it. I can't say I blame him, that that's what it took to believe him. But for the rest of Mary's life, she has a stained reputation. 30 years later, they're talking to Jesus, and they basically tell Jesus he's an illegitimate child. 30 years later, Mary's reputation is still following her son. So what what do you do when you have a bad reputation? And in the case of Mary, what do you do when you didn't even earn that reputation? See, what happened here was that Mary was, was doing something righteous. She was following God, and yet she was given a bad reputation. Can I tell you that can be true for you too? That following God doesn't mean you're going to have a perfect squeaky clean reputation because somebody might not understand what you're doing. Somebody might look at your decision to make different life choices or, or, or to follow the way of God and call you all sorts of names or based out of righteousness. What do you do when gossip has come against you and the only way to, to write the gossip is to kind of slander the other person back? What do you do? If you want to do the righteous thing, you just take the gossip and you take the slander and sometimes That gives you a bad reputation. So why do I tell these three stories? I tell these three stories because uh, for some reason, in the book of Matthew, Matthew thought it was incredibly important that these women found significant place in the Christmas story. If you have your Bibles, go and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I want you to read here with me what happens in Matthew chapter 1. It says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew chapter one, what's happening is the author Matthew is writing a narrative of of Jesus's life to a primarily Jewish audience. So he's trying to prove to the Jewish audience, this is the Messiah, this is the king, this is the one true God. And in fact, here is his family history. Family history and lineage was incredibly important to the Jewish people because it decided uh, who got what land. And so primarily, as you would read a genealogy, it was for history proof of who owned what land so that it ultimately could be theirs. But primarily, it was men included. Very, very rarely would you find a genealogy in which women were included unless it was on purpose. I want you to read with me the genealogy of Jesus. We're not going to read all of it. Don't worry. Read verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, if you don't know this, Abraham is the father of the Jewish faith, so it's a great start. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Jump to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was who? Was Rahab. Isn't that interesting? Rahab, the prostitute, is the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was who? was Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth, the person from the wrong side of the tracks. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been who? Uriah's wife. Remember our series a couple weeks ago, 
Who is that? That's Bathsheba. Bathsheba is in the family line of Jesus. Chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. As you read this, you're supposed to ask the questions. Uh, if you're trying to prove legitimacy, if you're trying to prove that he really is the son of Abraham and the son of David, um, couldn't you have left some of those names out and hope nobody remembered? Couldn't you have just told the story? But I think, in fact, I'm pretty confident the reason Matthew includes these is because he's trying to illustrate from the very beginning that Jesus came to bring hope to people with the past. That as you read the story of the Son of God who came to earth, these women played a significant role in that. Ones who had a reputation that most would have thought disqualified them from following God, let alone being great, 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 great grandmothers to the Son of God on earth. What a, what a gift he gave to them, which, which leads me to ask the question. As you consider your future, as you consider your past, who really ultimately are you letting define it? Because I think if we let the world and perhaps even ourselves define these women's past, what would have been true of their life and, and would be true of our, many of our lives is that we might not have a significant place in our minds in the kingdom of God in the future. But for these women, perhaps even for you, God has a far more significant future than your past is letting you write. Here, here's how I know this. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Son of man came eating and drinking. That is Jesus came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. If you don't know tax collectors, they were individuals with an a really shady reputation of ripping off uh, people that they should have been taking care of. So what did Jesus just say here? Jesus came as a friend to people with a bad reputation and a terribly sinful past. He came as who? Their friend. Which means that as I consider my past, as you consider your past, it doesn't stop Jesus from wanting to be your not only friend, but ultimately your savior forgiver, leader, and king. Nobody's damaged goods. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody's done too much that all of a sudden it just becomes the defining mark on your life. So I ask you again, uh, what do you do when your past haunts you? Well, here's what you do. You bring it to Jesus because here's the reality. Your past doesn't define you. Jesus does. Your family name doesn't define you. Jesus does. Your reputation doesn't define you. Jesus does. You see, Christmas reminds us that our sins of our past can find forgiveness because of God's mercy. He did not send his son into the world to judge the world. He sent his son into the world to set us free. That his son would go to the cross after going through the manger and ultimately become the rescue so that our past is not what defines us any and so perhaps this morning, you've been sitting in the place of judgment over your own past. You consider what you've done, and, and, and frankly, it feels a little bit more comfortable if you just judge yourself, because then you don't have to deal with this really uncomfortable thing called mercy, <laughs> in which we don't get what we deserved. And in fact, we get God's grace, which is we get abundant life when that's not also what we deserved. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 9. But go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Which means it's time to stop beating yourself up for where you've been, and it's time to start believing and receiving the mercy that God has given you. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. He didn't come for the pretty ones, the perfect ones. He came for the the ones who got a banged up past. And the reality is, if we're being honest, that's all of us. None of us are perfect. There's none of us that are righteous, which means there's no one in this room who has outsinned God's mercy. And what used to be true of you doesn't have to be true of your life anymore. When you came in this morning, there were some cards on your seat there. You should see two of them. I want you to go ahead and grab those with me this morning. On the one card on the back, you'll see it says my past. There should be a pen in front of you. If not, if you're in the front, there should be one right behind you. On these two cards, you'll, you'll see some things here. And the one says, the past that haunts me. I want, I want you this morning, if you don't want to do it right now, that's okay. You don't have to do it right now. I want you to begin to, to write down some things in your life that just seem to pop up. Maybe it is the family name. Maybe it is the reputation. Maybe, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a sin pattern that has followed you for, for far too long. If we let those things, they will ultimately become our identity. But, but that's not what God has called us to I want you to take some time, either now or this morning, I want you to write down some of those things, and here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to do what what Jesus has called us to do with the cross, which is to lay down the old person. What you saw this morning in baptism was to, to die to the old self, to put to death those old identities, and to be raised to newness and life. And so as you write these on, you can do a couple things. You can go burn this thing, you can go throw it in the garbage can, you can torch it, you can shoot it, I don't care what you want to do to it. But don't keep it, because Jesus didn't keep this record either, and neither should you. On this other card, you'll, you'll see five identity points, because it's one thing to just say, okay, God doesn't see me that way. God doesn't believe that I'm that way, but how does God see me? Well, what you see here is five points out of the book of Ephesians, and I want to read these to you so that you see how Christ redefines us. It says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So if you've put your faith in Jesus, made him the leader and forgive your life, what it means is that he chose you, which means if he chose you, he loved you and he desired you. And as you consider your past, maybe you don't feel that desirable. Well, here's the thing. God chose you anyway, regardless of how you feel about yourself. He believed you were valuable enough to choose you. Let's keep reading. Uh, He chose us before the uh, creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Well, he calls us holy and blameless, which means uh, I am not defined by my past. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the things that you regret most. He doesn't look at your failures. What he sees is Christ's perfection overlaid on top of you. Can I tell you that is one of the hardest concepts in Christianity for me to grasp deeply in my heart? Like I've, I've heard it and I've preached this sermon and I've preached these passages so many times, but to sit there and look in the mirror and go, God doesn't see the failures when that's all I can seem to see in the mirror. God doesn't see the fears and the shortcomings when that's all I seem to feel and experience sometimes. When he looks at me, he sees Christ over me. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and Well, which means not only am I now loved and accepted, I've been brought into the family. I get a new family name. I'm a son and daughter of the king. 
Next one, verse 7. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, which means all of the past is paid for. The debt is gone, and I stand here this morning debt-free. Burned, gone forever, never has to be brought back up. Then in a chapter later, Ephesians 2.10, he says something else very significant. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, which means I have meaning and purpose. As you consider Rahab, as you consider Ruth, as you consider Mary, as you consider Bathsheba, as you consider yourself, not only have you been forgiven, not only have you been set free, God has significant meaning and purpose for you to play in his kingdom. He has special things planned for you and for me. And all we have to do is walk in them, to leave the past behind us and walk hand in hand with the future that he has for us this morning. If you're here this morning and, and you're hearing all this and you've never made Jesus the leader and forgiver of your life and you say, man, I want that to be true of my life, we would love to have a conversation with you about that. If there's a communication card in front of you, write your name and a phone number and that you're interested in talking about salvation, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Or you can come find one of us. Regardless of what it is, here, here's my challenge to you this morning. With this Christmas season, when the past, when the fears come in, would you just pause and say, no, 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 I burned you. I threw you away because Jesus paid that price. Here's what's true of me now. That you begin as you're even preparing for the new year to ask God what it is that he wants to do in your life that he's created beforehand for you to walk in. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Yeah, we thank you for the Christmas season and how what it represents is that you looked at darkness you looked at our brokenness, you looked at our sin, and you didn't run away. In fact, you sent your son, born as a baby, to show us and provide for us a pathway back to you. God, we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, and yet you gave it to us. I pray that this morning, what would be true in our hearts is that you love us, that you care for us, that you died for us, and you have great things for us. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.